Well, before I begin, I just want to extend a special welcome to everybody, but in particular to those who are joining us for the first time or second time or whatever it may be. We are really grateful to have you. Um, you could be anywhere, but you're here this morning with us, and we count that a real privilege to serve you. At our church, we're really committed to, well, lots of things, but in particular, we're committed to trusting Christ and to treasuring Christ. Trusting Christ for the impossible and treasuring him as our deepest delight. Our mission statement goes, we exist to prize, portray, and proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. We're serious about joy here. Joy that can only be found in and through Christ and what he accomplished. So, so grateful to have you. So grateful to minister to you this morning. Grateful to be gathered in the most important meeting on the planet, namely the Sunday gathering of the redeemed, celebrating the one who redeemed us. It's good to be together. I also want to begin by saying that when it comes to food, this is the sermon now, when it comes to food, um, to be totally honest, I'm not much of a risk taker. I don't like trying new things. In fact, I'll just admit it, I'm a downright coward. Um, I have what you might call a weak stomach. I gag easily on slimy textures and gooey substances. Things like runny eggs, tofu, mushrooms, oysters, and all fish are my least favorite food on the planet. I mean, call me crazy, but food that looks like snot or smells like it comes out of a dumpster just, just isn't that appealing to me. Sorry if that offends you. But what this does, though, is bring me to my question. This is very important. This is, this is holy now. This is, this is a holy question. The question is, what are your limits as far as what you'd be willing to eat? What are your limits as far as what you'd be willing to try? So, for instance, here's some examples. Would you be willing to try cow tongue? So we'll start mild. We'll, we'll go low here. C cow tongue, which is like a favorite in Romania, or what used to be Romania and Turkey. Would you eat cow tongue? Here's another one. What about pickled pig's feet eaten by people in this part of the country? What is wrong with you people? What on earth? Or how about this? Would you ever try balut? Balut, a, Phil uh, a Philippine, uh, a delicacy in the Philippines, which essentially, I think, uh, Bobby might have to correct me on this, which is essentially rotted baby ducks still in its shell, simmering in embryotic fluids. Would you try that? Okay, well, there it is. Okay, how about this? How about the Norwegian holiday classic, which is called Smalahove, which is essentially you eat a sheep's face on Christmas. You Literally, you eat his face. Okay, here's another one. If you're a vampire that likes pancakes, in Finland they have what's known as blodplatter, which is like pancakes made of pig's blood, milk, flour, molasses, butter, and onions all mixed together and fried. Would you, would you eat that? Okay, now that I've got your attention, uh, let me raise the stakes just a little bit. Raise the stakes. Okay, again, this is holy stuff I'm talking about here. What if, what if you found a hair in your burger? Could you finish it? Okay, I didn't know this was going to be so interactive. You really want to answer these questions. This is really great. Okay, maybe we'll just have a, an after-church meeting and you can just answer all my questions, okay? Uh, keep going. There's another one. What, what about if you found little weevils or worms in your oatmeal? All right. Or a dead mouse in the bottom of your Coke can? Or a dead frog in your green beans? 
or a fingernail in your spaghetti or a Band-Aid in your salad? Could you finish the food if you found any of those things in them? <laughs> okay, now I realize, I realize what's happening here. Okay, this is, this is disgusting and borderline inappropriate. The reason why I say this is, is because I, I want you to feel kind of grossed out. I actually want you to feel mildly disgusted right now. Do you know why? Because how you feel right now is kind of what the crowd to whom Jesus was preaching felt like when he told them that they had to eat his flesh, drink his blood, or perish forever. That's how they felt. And you see, what you're about to hear this morning from Christ is not an episode of bizarre foods or fear factor or strange addiction or eat that. What this is, what you're going to hear from Christ this morning is a sermon. A sermon preached in a synagogue to a packed house full of people, standing room only, and it's an increasingly hostile and offended group of people to whom he's preaching. In other words, Christ is in the middle of a Jewish worship service preaching to these people, and the more he says, the more they argue with him. And the more they argue with him, the more he sets them straight. And the more he sets them straight, the more offended and infuriated they become until eventually they get so offended, they eventually walk out and hundreds of his followers leave, and they never, ever return. And just when you think that Christ should apologize or back off or soften his touch, he does the complete opposite and he simply pushes these people to the absolute edge. You know what he does? He tells them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood or they go to hell forever. It's pretty bold. Pretty risky, pretty daring, and, and offensive, and disgusting, and it is glorious. It's glorious because, because what he means by that is absolutely life-changing. He's speaking metaphorically, and they miss the point entirely. But what he means by that is absolutely profound, because when he says to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, all he's doing is giving a graphic metaphor of what authentic faith actually is. In other words, to eat him and to drink his blood, offensive though it may sound on the surface, all it means, all it is, is a, is a way to describe what it means to believe in him. And what it means to believe in him is more radical and profound than you have ever even imagined. So to prepare you this morning for what you're about to hear, I just want to ask you, do you know what it means to believe in Jesus Christ? I mean, what it really actually means to believe. Do you know what authentic faith is and do you have it? That's the question. Because believing in Christ, is it merely believing in something that you can't see? Is it intellectual affirmation of a few historical facts? Is that what faith is? Or, or is faith in Christ something radical and supernatural and something that even satisfies the deepest longings of the human soul? So prepare yourselves this morning for what you're about to hear because this morning Christ is going to rattle your cage and refresh your soul and reorient your priorities and refute wrong beliefs and remind you once again of what it means to actually, truly believe. So let's look at the text. 
I'll actually be preaching from verse 41 to 59. And so let's look at the text and let's look at what it means to have bloody faith in Jesus Christ. And here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from this text three components. Three components of authentic faith that upon seeing them will either disgust you, delight you, or they will deliver you. That's where we're headed. Three components of authentic faith that upon seeing them will either disgust you, delight you, or deliver you. And so the first component of authentic faith is this. Number one, the supernatural cause of faith. The supernatural cause of faith. Verses 41 through 46. Now, I ain't gonna lie to you. What you're about to see and hear from the text could be the most shocking thing you have ever heard about your salvation. Not even kidding. And nevertheless, as hard as what you're about to hear is to uh, understand or accept, it nevertheless will be one of the deepest foundations of your joy. And what you're about to hear and what you're about to see from the text is this. Are you ready? Here it is. Although 100% responsible to believe and trust in Christ, sinners on their own, by themselves, cannot and will not believe in Christ unless a miracle is done in their souls first. That's what you're about to hear. You see, the scriptures tell us that our spiritual condition before and without Christ is so tragic and paralyzing that on our own, by ourselves, we would have never believed and been saved. That we were blind. That we were dead, spiritually speaking. That we were a slave to our sin. And that even if something as seemingly simple as believing in Jesus would have been absolutely impossible for us. That is, unless, of course, a miracle was performed in us first. And I know, I know that sounds outrageous. And it seems impossible to fathom. But that is, nevertheless, exactly what the scriptures teach. And Christ is about to say that very thing. And so look at verses 41 and 42. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How now does he say, I have come down out of heaven? Now, you remember where we are, right? We're in the middle of a synagogue. Verse 59 tells us we're in the middle of a synagogue. We're a Jewish house of worship, and Christ is preaching to a packed house full of people. And these people, it just so happens, were among the 20,000 people the day before who saw Christ do a miracle. And the miracle that they saw was when he took a handful of crackers and fish, and in the time it took to blink, he miraculously multiplied enough bread and fish for the entire crowd to eat. That was yesterday. Today, the crowd is back for more. And although promising, though this seems on the, purpose, on the surface, great. I mean, there's a lot of people showing up. They want to hear Christ preach. They want to be around him. It seems promising, but things are not what they appear. You see, this crowd, for all their initial zeal and enthusiasm, they don't actually want Christ. 
They only want to use him as a means to get what they really want. And today, what they really want is a free meal. They're looking for handouts and a continental breakfast. But you see, Christ is not merely here to give them food, but to be food. That he came down from heaven both to save their souls and to satisfy their souls. That he showed up to the planet both to deliver their souls and to delight their souls, to refresh their souls and to rescue their souls. That was the mission. And that's the very thing they find so offensive. Look again at verse 41. It says, the Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. Here, the honeymoon phase in the life of Christ has officially come to an end. As the people begin to grumble, they're offended, they're irritated, they're annoyed, they're skeptical. In fact, the tense of the verb grumble indicates that they had been grumbling for some time. Greek class, this is the imperfect tense. You know what that means. They were whispering and hissing and shaking their heads and muttering to one another under their breath. They did not like what they were hearing from Christ, not one single bit. And yet, what was it that offended them and got under their skin? What was it exactly that was so irritating to them and so hard to believe? Look at the end of verse 41. It says, they grumbled because he said, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. See that? They didn't so much have a problem with the fact that he called himself bread, but they said he was the bread which came down out of heaven. You see, that was annoying. That was offensive. And the reason for that is because they understood that the claim to be from heaven was a claim to be equal with God himself. And that, that was absolutely unthinkable. There's no way that's true. Because look at the reason they give in verse 42. And they were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How now does he say, I have come down out of heaven? Do you feel the outrage beginning to fester? Really? Is this guy kidding? Who does he think he is? Is, is this not Jesus? We know his mom and dad. We've seen this guy grow up. And notice their question anticipates a positive answer. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Yes, this is only Jesus, the mere son of Joseph. Your average, middle-class, run-of-the-mill, blue-collar nobody that all of us have known for years, which I get. I get that. I mean, if you knew his parents and you had watched him grown up, it would be a tough pill to swallow that this is God himself in human flesh showed up to the planet. I mean, if you had seen him have his diaper changed as a baby, you might have a right to be skeptical. And yet the problem is the Old Testament predicted this very thing, didn't it? That God would show up as a literal, historical human being and would emerge to the, onto the planet as a baby 700 years before this moment. The prophet Isaiah said this very same thing. He said, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
You see, Christ wasn't claiming anything. The prophets hadn't already been claiming for centuries was going to happen. They had no logical, no theological reason for their skepticism. And yet look at the cynical conclusion they come at the end of verse 42. How now does he say, I have come down out of heaven? I mean, if, he, if this is true, if he really is deity, if he really is God in human flesh, why are we just now hearing this? I mean, if he really is, if he really is from heaven itself, why is he just now telling us this? You see, these people are totally unconvinced. They're totally hostile and offended. And Christ responds to their grumbling. Look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble with one another. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me should draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. I hear you grumbling out there. I hear you grumbling and whispering and complaining and bellyaching about over the things I've said, and I order you to knock it off right now. Which is interesting to me how, how it's gotten so tense so quickly because five minutes ago, these people showed up so cheerful and enthusiastic, but now their fangs are beginning to show and it only goes downhill hill from here. You see, yesterday they watched him feed 20,000 people from breadcrumbs. They themselves ate the miracle bread and fish. And yet in about 10 minutes from this moment, they are going to walk away from Christ totally unbelieving. And what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? And the question is, why do some people believe in Christ and other people reject Christ? Why? I mean, what's the ultimate explanation for why some people believe in Christ and other people reject Christ? And if you say it was their free will choice, I say, well, that's true. They have a choice. And they will make a choice. But is that the deepest explanation the Bible gives? Because I'll have you know that what Christ is about to say is the ultimate reason why some people believe in Christ and why other people reject Christ. And it all has to do, get this now, with a sovereign work of God performed in the soul that God must perform for anyone to believe and be saved. Look at verses 44 through 46, but I warn you, I warn you. It might just change everything you've ever believed about your own salvation. Here's the reason why they don't believe, verses 44 through 46. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me should draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It has been written in the prophets and they will all be taught of God. Notice, everyone who heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. You you see and you hear what he said in verse 44, don't you? I mean, this is absolutely devastating in a good way. He just said that no one is able on their own, 
by themselves to come to Christ for salvation unless that is the Father works a miracle in their souls first. That's what he just said. That no one comes to Christ broken and needy and hungry for salvation unless the Father draws them to his Son first. And that right there, that is the deepest explanation for why some people believe and why some people reject, namely the sovereign awakening work of the Father where he supernaturally draws them to his son. And I just want you to know that is exactly what happened to you if you are in Christ this morning. And I'll have you know that that same word draw is used in John 21, 6 when the disciples dragged in a net Full of fish. That's the same word used in Acts 16, 19, when an angry mob dragged away Paul and Silas. That's the same word used in Acts 21, 30, when it describes an angry mob of Jews and they dragged Paul out of the temple. That's the exact word used in James 2, verse 6, when it describes dragging people into court. And here it describes a sovereign work of the Father, drawing and dragging and pulling sinners to Jesus Christ for salvation. And maybe you're thinking, wait, does that mean that the Father drags people against their will? pulling them, as it were, dragging them off, to, as if dragging them to, to jail, forcing them to believe in his son? Is that what this means? No, not that. But it is, it does describe when God drags people out of spiritual death and awakens their hearts and opens blind eyes so that they see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's what he says in verse 45. He says, the one who heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And make no mistake, that is exactly what happened to every single person in this room. If you believe in Christ today, the Father worked a miracle in you. You see, you were listening to a sermon. You're reading the Bible. Someone was preaching the gospel to you and all of a sudden the gospel and Christ, which previously were so boring and offensive to you, all of a sudden became thrilling and beautiful and supernatural. All of a sudden your soul was awakened to see the matchless, incomparable beauty of Christ. In a moment, your eyes were opened to the terrors of hell and the poison of sin. And you saw that you had only one option, which was to flee for refuge to Jesus Christ. My question is, what happened to you? What changed in you? What was the difference from one moment to the next? I'll tell you the difference. It wasn't you. No, the Father, in a miraculous saving act of sovereign grace, drew you to his Son, and then you believed that is what happened. And you might be thinking, well, what about my free will choice? To which I reply, Christ is not describing the removal of the ability to choose. 
He is describing the removal of spiritual blindness so that we see we have no choice left but to choose Jesus Christ. Do you hear the difference? Make no mistake, you made a real choice and a real decision, and your faith was your own, and it was real, but what you did not realize at the time is that probably just moments before you exercised faith, although imperceptible to you at the time, God did a miracle in your soul, a life-giving, soul-awakening miracle that God had to perform for you to believe and be saved in the first place, and had he not done that, we would have never believed and been saved. And you see that sovereign act of God that he performs in the soul that awakens repentance and faith, that's what the Bible calls regeneration. That's what the Bible calls being born again. And all it means is that even when you were dead in trespasses and sins, God walked up to the tomb of your dead soul and he said, live. And you became alive. And see, that is the reason. That is the reason why some people believe and why some people reject. And Christ is telling this hostile crowd to their face, the reason why you grumble, the reason why you don't get it, the reason why I'm so offensive to you is because simply because you are still blind. You need the Father to draw you to me. And the question becomes, when you think about these doctrinal issues, the question becomes, okay, well, I mean, it's obvious for the unbeliever what they must do. They must cry out for a new heart, cry out to be awakened. And if you do not know Christ, I beg you, plead with you right now to call out to God to awaken you. But, but for believers, how does this help us? Now that we're on this side of things and we are saved, how does it really help us to reflect upon these kinds of things? How does this help us? Because, because if you think about it this way, if you really felt the hopeless weight of your condition apart from Christ, I mean, if you, re if you, if you understood what it, me what it took from God to get you to Christ, what it took to happen, how much do you think your life would change? Think about it like this, anger, pride, discontentment, feelings of superiority over others, harsh, critical attitudes, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, hiding your sin from others. Don't, don't you see? Those are all ugly symptoms of pride, of, of an overinflated view of self-importance. In other words, all those things reveal is that we don't Get grace. Sovereign, initiating, intruding grace from God that interfered and meddled in your life. But you see, if you want to be a tender, humble, gracious, patient person that really loves people, and I know you do, then you need to ponder long and hard what God had to do to get you saved. Because when you do that, well, then there is just no room anymore for the supremacy of the self. And that's the first component of authentic faith. That upon seeing it will either disgust you, delight you, or deliver you. Which brings us to the second component of authentic faith. Number two, the satisfying object of faith. 
the satisfying object of faith, verses 47 through 51. Now, you would think that after what Christ just said, that he would close his Bible and he would walk out of the room. Because, because, depending, you know, because of what he just said, that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. Because of that, there's no point in preaching anymore, right? I mean, if no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them to Christ, then trying to persuade these people is a total waste of time. Right? Or is it? Or is it? Apparently not, because after unfolding for these people the supernatural cause of faith, he now lays before them the satisfying object of faith. In other words, in other words, you have to understand the means and the instrument and the math- methodology by which God awakens dead sinners is by riveting glorious presentations and displays of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want college students to really like you and be your friend, you offer them free food. And if you want dead sinners to be awakened, you offer them the most tantalizing feast in the universe, which is Jesus Christ himself, which is precisely what he does. Look at verses 47 through 51. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And then pointing to himself, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven in order that anyone who eats of it should not die. I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone should eat from this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And you notice there in verse 47, the customary, truly, truly, I say to you, which all that is is a way of telling you that what's about to come out of his mouth is of earth-shattering significance, and it totally is, because notice what he says. He says, the one who believes has eternal life. Eternal life. And we hear those words, we just kind of, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Believe eternal life. Yeah, I got that. I'm I'm moving on. Don't do that. Don't, Don't do that. Don't fall asleep at the wheel when you hear those words. Those are sacred words. We should tremble when we hear those words. Think about it. Why? Because eternal life is not just living a really long time. It is everlasting and ever increasing pleasure in God in paradise forever. This means everything. Eternal life. But you see, the question is, well, okay, the one who believes has eternal life. The one who believes in what? The one who believes in who? In whom am I supposed to believe to obtain this eternal life? What's the answer? Verse 48. Christ says the one who believes has eternal life. Notice what Christ says. I am the bread of life. And whom are we to believe? The answer is the bread of life. Christ himself is the satisfying object of saving faith. And he he calls himself the bread 
of life. He said it back in verse 35. He says it again here, and it is literally one of the most significant things that ever came out of his mouth. You know why? Because to call himself the bread of life, get this now, means that he just made the gargantuan claim that all of the satisfaction that we long for in all of our pursuits can only actually be found in him. In other words, as God, he alone satisfies the deepest cravings of the human soul. He saves and he satisfies. He delivers and he delights. He rescues the soul and he refreshes the soul. That is the point. And, and maybe you're wondering, okay, what, what does it mean exactly that Christ satisfies the soul? Because that sounds really good and I, and I want that. But what does that even mean that, that Jesus Christ alone satisfies? And the answer is this. Here's what it means that Christ satisfies. You ready? Everything that Christ is and everything that Christ accomplished is precisely what you were created to need and enjoy forever. That's what it means. All that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished is precisely what you were created to need and enjoy forever. In other words, we were designed by Christ with longings that he alone can fulfill. We were made by Jesus Christ with longings for satisfaction that could only be fulfilled by himself. Which means anything else to which you look other than Christ for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction will leave you bitterly disappointed. And what this does is raise the question, and the question is, have you been seeking your deepest satisfaction in things other than the bread of life? Are there other things in life from which you are trying to extract what only the bread of life can supply? Bottom line, what I'm asking is, is there anything in your life competing with Jesus Christ for the feast and treasure of your soul? Because if so, that would explain the joylessness that would explain the hopelessness. That would explain the restlessness. That would explain the sleeplessness. That would explain the discouragement and depression. That would explain why sin is so irresistible and hard to kill. Why? Because when we seek our highest satisfaction in anything other than Christ, the very fabric of our lives begin to become unraveled. Never ever forget that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is not to deny our longings for pleasure, but instead even to indulge those longings for pleasure in the one who alone can fulfill them. But notice what Christ does in verses 49 and 50. It's very interesting. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness and died. This, pointing to himself, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven in order, the one who, in order that anyone who eats of it shall not die. Do you know what he's doing here? 
It's very interesting. He's actually responding to a little manipulation tactic that they used back in verse 31. Did you know what they did? As a way to manipulate him and get him to do a magic trick and provide them a free lunch, they cleverly reminded him of the fact that God fed their ancestors manna in the wilderness for decades. Do you remember that? The book of Numbers, remember? God provided manna in the wasteland. That flour, corn, meal-like substance that fell to the ground like snow from which they could make pancakes or bread or pastries or scones or whatever it is they wanted. And God provided that every single day for 40 straight years. And their point was, God gave our ancestors manna for 40 years. Hint, hint. What are you going to do for us? I mean, he gave them 40 years worth of meals. You gave us one. So... So how does Christ respond to their little manipulation? Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. Whoops. You forgot about that part, didn't you? You know that part where they grumbled and complained and rebelled against God for decades and God slowly killed them off in the desert. They died without heriting the promises. You remember that? That slip your mind? Oh, they ate the bread, all right, that's true. But what good did it do them? They ate the bread, but what did it accomplish? What did it matter that they ate the bread and lost their very souls? Corpses lay strewn in the wilderness because of unbelief. That's his point. And you see, the reality is we do the same thing, don't we? We do the exact same thing. We look at what others have and what they get to enjoy. And we get fidgety and discontent. We mistakenly think that the world gets all the pleasure while Christians get all the rules. We peek into the lunchbox of the world and we see the treats that they get to enjoy, guilt-free, by the way, and we begin to feel like these people in the synagogue, shortchanged and discontent. We get restless and disgruntled, and yet I've got news for you. Anything other than Jesus Christ is just manna in the wilderness. It's just manna in the wilderness. It does not work, it will not last, and it cannot satisfy. So my question for you is, what is the manna in your life right now? What is that thing to which you might be looking other than Christ for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction? Because if it's not Jesus Christ, the bread of life, it's just manna in the wilderness. And manna cannot reach deep enough to fulfill the deepest cravings of the soul. Which is precisely his point in verse 50. Look what he says. He says, your fathers ate manna and died. Here, here it is. This, this, I am the bread which comes down out of heaven in order that anyone who eats of it will not die. And by not die, he means not perish forever. You know, it's really interesting to me that scientists have found ways of making food last forever, almost forever. 
right? They, the scientifically, genetically modified food so that it just, it just lasts forever. It has no expiration date. You, you can eat it decades, years, decades after it was made. And yet the, the problem is, the catch is, is that all of those or many of those preservatives and chemicals that they actually put in food actually has the potential to kill you. I mean, the food that lasts forever actually has the potential to kill you. The point is, here, here now, is a kind of food that not only lasts forever and has no expiration date, but it also grants to the one who eats it the secret to immortality. You eat this bread, and you live forever in paradise. And that bread is Jesus Christ, who's not just a man, he is God. And yet, and yet, what's also intriguing to me is that even the most uh, pagan, irreligious, atheistic, secular person, even the most God-hating person in the world, they know, they just know that something's wrong with the world, don't they? They just know, they just, anyone, even the most non-Bible reading person in the world just knows that something isn't right. Like a broken bone that just didn't heal right. It's just something feels off. And yet where that broken bone lies is in our souls, isn't it? Inside something is horribly maimed and mutilated and mangled. And yet we know on the authority of the Bible that what's wrong with us is that because of our sin, we are born estranged and separated and cut off from the living God, right? That's a dilemma. And the solution to that dilemma, Christ provides, look at verse 51. He says, I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone should eat from this bread, he will live forever. And here it is. And the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I mean, you understand, don't you? The deepest dilemma of life is not the melting of the polar ice caps. It is not your carbon footprint. It is not global warming. It is not world hunger. It is not COVID. It is not the sex trade. The deepest dilemma of life is this. How do hell-deserving sinners get reconciled to God as the treasure of their soul? That is the dilemma. And the solution, the only solution is when Christ gives his life, gives his flesh for the life of the world. The sin-bearing, substitutionary, sacrificial death of Christ in the place of the very people who deserve to die. That's what he's talking about when he says, I give my flesh for the life of the world. And so if you do not know Christ here this morning, you need to know there is a bread. There is a food with no expiration date that upon eating it grants to the one who eats it the secret to immortality. And it is Jesus Christ who gave his life for the world. Which brings us very quickly to the third component of authentic faith. Number three, the scandalous nature of faith. The scandalous nature of faith. And here's where the crowd goes wild and not in a good way. 
off to summarize, in verses 52 through 55, the Jews, they begin to quarrel with one another, argue and fight and bicker with one another in front of Christ. They're very offended. They don't understand how it is that Christ could possibly give them his flesh to eat. So at some level, they must have taken him absolutely literally and misunderstood him to be advocating some form of, of cannibalism. That's not what he meant at all. Speaking metaphorically, they missed the point entirely, but what he means by it is absolutely life-changing. And he responds to the outrage. Look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you should, here it is, eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you do not have life, will not have life in yourself. Jesus, you can't just do that. You, you can't do that. These people are offended. They're already offended by you. They're already angry. They're going to leave your church. Your church is going to shrink if you say hard things. You can't do that. You're just going to roll this little grenade into the synagogue. Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. Because, because what he means by this is of earth-shattering significance. And yet the point is, what does this mean exactly? What does it mean to eat his flesh and to drink his blood? Well, notice, notice. Before he even gets, gets into that, he says, unless. See that in the text? Unless. That's an ultimatum. If you don't do this, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, something horrible is going to happen to you. Like what? Like you won't have eternal life. So we've got to find out what this means. What does it mean to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And the meaning is clear and unmistakable. All he's talking about when he says to eat his flesh and drink his blood, all this is is a graphic metaphor for faith. That's what it is. And we know that's what it means because all throughout the Gospel of John, we see statements like this. Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 24. The one who believes has eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 40. The one who believes in him has eternal life. Chapter 6, 40, verse 47, the one who believes has eternal life. Now, all of a sudden, he says, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Don't you see? Eating him and believing in him are the exact same thing. And yet, what does he mean by this? Well, it's clear, isn't it? See, what he means by calling faith eating his flesh and drinking his blood is very simply this. You see, you hunger in and thirst in your soul for satisfaction. Do you not? You do, don't you? We all do. We all have insatiable longings to be as satisfied as we possibly can. And that's not sinful. That's normal. That's the way God made us. We want pleasure and satisfaction. News flash, we were made for pleasure and satisfaction. And so when Christ says to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he simply means that the essence of authentic faith, here it is, is to come to him hungry and thirsty. That's what he means. Faith is the act of the soul where we take Christ up on his offer to satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. That is faith. 
That's what it means to be a believer. And if these people are offended by that, and they were, I'm skipping a bunch of stuff here. If they were offended by that, they haven't heard anything yet. Because, as you know, there are some words in the English language that are so gross-sounding that you should never, ever use them in a conversation, right? You know those words. Like they're, they're not like cuss words, but they're just gross, and you should never use them in a conversation or in a sermon. But I'm going to. I'm going to use some of those words because, because Christ is about to use one of those words that just sounds icky and gross and awkward and one of those things you should never actually say in public. I recently looked up the 30 grossest sounding words in the English language and I'm going to give you some of those. And the reason why I am is because I want you to feel how they felt when Christ used one of those words. Coming in at number 27. Here we go. Mucus. Number 16. Pustule. Number 11. I'm really enjoying this, by the way. Orifice. Number 10, chunky. Number eight, smear. Number six, globby. Number three, I didn't even know this word existed before, lugubrious. And then number one, consider the grossest word in the English language that you really shouldn't use unless you're talking about cake, and that's on rare assumptions, and that is the word moist. You shouldn't use those words. They're awkward and gross, and yet Christ uses one of those very words. Look at verse 54. He says, the one who eats, literally the one who feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, up until this point, when Christ says the word eat, he's been using the standard polite word for eat in Greek, estheo. Normal, everyday, average word that you would use at the dinner table. I am excited to eat this, estheo. Here in verse 54, he switches to the word trogo. Trogo. And apparently it sounded kind of nasty in the first century world because that's the common word used for noisy, sloppy, snorting, snarling sounds that animals make when they eat food. And he's saying he wants you to eat him like that. <laughs> but the point is not for shock effect. The point is not to be shocking. The point of using the word is to describe the intensity of the appetite. In other words, he is saying, when it comes to finding your deepest satisfaction in me, etiquette and table manners don't apply. Don't hold back. Feast. Indulge. Gorge yourself on alone what will satisfy the soul. You are hungry. I am the feast. You are thirsty. I am the fountain. Come to me and find your deepest satisfaction, which you can never find anywhere else. That is faith. Oh, believer, don't, don't you see how freeing this is? Don't you see it? Can't you see that sin is what we do when we are not satisfied in Christ? Can't you see how liberating this is? That lust and porn and fear of man 
and loneliness and greed and revenge and slander and same-sex desires and the ugliest sins with which we struggle cannot hold a candle to the superior pleasures found in Jesus Christ. Because you see, all faith is, is looking to the scriptures in real time, beholding the beauty of Christ and remembering the most life-transforming news in the universe, which is he has something better to give. Let's pray. Oh, bread of life, we give you thanks. Lord, we understand faith is not merely to believe in something that we can't see. Faith is not merely intellectual affirmation of a few historical facts. There are historical facts and they're real and true and we bank our lives on them, Christ, but we see that faith at the end of the day is to take you up on your offer to satisfy our deepest longings. Help us be a faithful people. Help us to be a believing people. Help us to be a people who cling to you moment by moment looking for the satisfaction that you alone provide. Come to us, Lord. Help us to be people who are, have enlarged appetites for your word through which we may see your glory and have our souls satisfied. Make us, O oh Christ, I pray, a pleasure-filled people. In your name, amen. Well, that text, that sermon is a perfect transition to what next week we begin a series in 1 John. I'm excited for that. been preparing for this for months. I cannot wait. So we will delve into 1 John next week. Let me uh, do a couple things here. I know that I am keeping you super late. Um, no, you know what? I'm not going to have time for that. I was going to talk about voting and how to think about voting and how to process voting. And it's really important. Actually, here's what I'll do. I will say one thing. We all know the vote's coming up. It is here. It is time to cast your ballot. And these are strange times. These are really difficult, challenging times. Let me, let me tell you one thing here, two few things about voting. Because, because my whole thought for years was, what is even the point? It's probably not going to go my way. It's probably not going to go the way I want. I mean, is there even a point to this voting thing? I mean, well, what's a theology of voting? Three, three things about voting that, that I want you to keep in mind. If you haven't already cast your ballot, three things that I want you to keep in mind as we think about voting and politics. Number one, there is a worship component to voting. And by that I mean is that we want to vote for those who will best enable the church to thrive. We want to vote for people who are going to enable the church to flourish and to do what we need to do as the church, regardless of what that politician's personal views are on spiritual things. To me, that is almost, it's not irrelevant, but if a non-Christian candidate was going to allow the church to do what they needed to do, they're probably going to get my vote. Okay, so we want to vote for candidates who are going to enable the church to thrive and flourish and do what we need to do. There's a worship component. There's also a witness component to voting also. You see, voting is a really small, microscopic way of being salt and light in the world, isn't it? We vote, even if it doesn't go our way, we must vote because, because it demonstrates to those who are ruling over us that there are a contingency of people under their leadership that they have to respect, that they have to identify with, that they have to listen to. And it's people like us. We have things to say 
about the value of human life. We have things to say about morality. We have things to say about truth. And even if our politicians don't care about us, and largely they do not, and increasingly so they do not care, they still have to account for the fact that in the system that's been set up, they're supposed to listen. They're supposed to listen. And so the way we vote, how we vote, who we vote for is a teeny tiny way of saying you need to listen to us. We are salt and light. And then finally, there's a worldview component, and this is the most important of all. We're going to cast our votes. We're going to do our thing. Someone on November 3rd is going to be in the White House. And, I mean, this is always kind of risky to talk about stuff like this. It kind of feels like we have to vote between uh, Samson and Jephthah, right? It's like, okay, okay. You know, it's just, it, it, these are not easy decisions to make. However, here's what sustains us in the midst of it. Number one, Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. He rules absolutely everything. Trump or Biden may be president. Christ is always the king, and we cling to that. Number two, he appoints the rulers and leaders. Even if it was the worst possible person we could imagine sitting in the White House, think Nero, think Stalin, think Hitler, think Kim Jong-un. Imagine if that was the person who was going to be sitting in the White House. According to Romans 13 and Isaiah chapter 40, who put him there? God did. God did. I'm not saying we don't be responsible and vote. So I'm talking about this. I'm just saying we lean on the sovereignty of God over all things. It doesn't mitigate or minimize any of our responsibility to be good citizens or vote. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying at the end of the day. And then number three, our worldview component. There's worship, there's witness, and there's worldview. In our worldview, we understand where human history is headed. One day it will not be a democracy or, 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 you know, republic. It will not be any system. You know what it's going to be in the future? The future government of the world is going to be a kingdom. That's where human history is headed. There's going to be a kingdom and all power will be centrifugally placed on one person who will rule all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. The founding fathers knew it was very unwise, i.e. stupid to give one person all the power. So you spread it across like a thousand different people and maybe that'll keep us from train wrecking this thing. In the future, all power will be placed on one. Christ at his kingdom. So, that must guide us as we vote. That must shape us. We are not placing our hope in a candidate. We are placing our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, there's other things that we could and should say, but my point is this, vote your theology. Vote your theology. Our theology should shape our politics, not the other way around. Vote your theology. Last thing I'll say is this, my apologies, is uh, tonight at 5 p.m. we're doing another theology seminar talking about Mormonism. Um, we're going through a series on cults and false religions, and so if you want to know how to reach lost people, specifically people who believe different things contrary to the Bible, uh, this is perfect for you. So we'll talk about the history of Mormonism, the theology of Mormonism, and a methodology of how to reach Mormons, okay? All right, that is it. You guys are free to go, and we will see you tonight. Also, there is dinner tonight, so come get two meals if you want dinner and to hear about Mormonism. So we will see you tonight, and if not, we'll see you next week. You are dismissed.